It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 214 for October 17th, 2010. Recorded October 15th before a live audience of felines. I talk about browsers every now and then, and I thought this week I'd do a little more in-depth on browsers. It's really almost like the old days. As the web was being developed, many browsers were available. Then the choices dwindled, essentially to Explorer and Netscape. Opera was there, but only with a tiny market share. Firefox and the other browsers based on the Mozilla engine then came along. Then Chrome and Safari. For some of us, the best answer to which browser should I use is all of the above. Really. If you're interested, Wikipedia has a useful graphical timeline of browser development. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Most of the early browsers are forgotten. They had names like Viola, www, Irwise, Midas, www, and Mac, www. Clever names, those. Then Mosaic, Cello, Lynx, that's a character-based web browser, and it's still around, and Arena. Netscape Navigator was followed by a totally useless Internet Explorer. Explorer was slightly improved in version 2, but it wasn't until version 3 that Microsoft had a more or less usable browser. That was in 1996. At that time, about 36 million people were using the web. Today, it's more like 2 billion. Initially, Mosaic had virtually all of the market. Then Netscape arrived and took over. When Microsoft bundled its browser with Windows, IE became the leader. But since about 2007, Mozilla-based browsers, Safari, and even Little Opera have been chipping away at Microsoft's dominance. Check the TechBiter Worldwide website and you'll see a graph that shows browser dominance starting in about 1994 and going through 2009. So which one is right for you? Possibly a combination. For example, my preferred browser is Firefox, and it is my preferred browser because there are thousands of add-ons that allow me to configure a browser that does exactly what I want it to do and that looks exactly the way I want it to look. Firefox can also check for updates, its own and those of the add-ons, when it starts. This is good because it keeps all the components up to date, but it's bad because it can make the startup process extremely slow. For that reason, although Firefox is my favorite browser and the one I use most often, it is not my default browser. My default browser is Chrome. If I click a link in an email, I want the browser to open fast. And Chrome is the speed champion. Chrome also has some other advantages by creating a new instance for every website. If one site causes a browser crash, only that single instance crashes most of the time. As with most things from Google, Chrome is essentially beta software and features arrive and depart with little warning. 
But Chrome is collecting a following of developers who create add-ons. In fact, nearly every add-on that I use with Firefox is available or has an analogous add-on or the feature is already built in to Chrome. As for Microsoft, we'll soon see version 9 of its browser. Honestly, I have to admit that version 8 does have some good features, but IE is probably still the most security-challenged browser. I haven't yet looked at the IE9 beta. I will undoubtedly install it when it is released. You need IE even if you use it only rarely. IE has a direct link to Windows Update, and it's the only browser that works for certain websites that have been created by what I call non-thinking designers. I call them that to avoid calling them imbeciles. As much as I admire Opera's objectives, I haven't been able to use the browser on a long-term basis. There are simply too few customizations, and the rendering engine seems to have too many quirks. That leaves Safari and my previous opinion of the Apple browser that's based on the WebKit open source browser project had been that it's an okay browser for Apple computers, but should be avoided by Windows users. You may have noticed the past tense there. Since the release of Safari version 5, my opinion has changed. Safari has taken the place of Opera as my number three browser. At the office, I typically have two browsers open, one on each screen. At home, I open Firefox as soon as I start the computer, but Chrome is almost always open, too, because I've followed a link from somewhere. In cases where I need a third browser, I usually reach now for Safari. And on the even rarer occasions, when I have to use Internet Explorer, you might find me with four active browsers. So really, you don't have to pick just one. Firefox, without question, is the versatility champion because of the huge number of add-ons available. The add-ons can improve security, modify the browser's look and feel, add blogging and commenting abilities, assist website developers with code testing tools, help with shopping, streamline downloads, and a lot more. That's why it's my favorite. But a close second in terms of add-ons is Google's Chrome browser. It's probably the fastest loading browser available. If you routinely need to have a second browser open and you don't want a second instance of Firefox, this is a really good choice. And Chrome, of course, integrates very well with Google's other offerings. Surprise of surprises, Safari is my number three choice. And I am more than a little surprised to find myself saying something that complimentary about Apple's Safari, because it tends to be an also-ran even among die-hard Apple fans. The current version is far more capable than previous versions, and its speed rivals that of Chrome. This wouldn't be my choice as the default browser, but it's now pleasantly surprising instead of scary. And then there's Opera. It's never really caught on anywhere, and in the U.S. it's almost unheard of. It's relatively popular in some parts of Europe. It's a Norwegian product. The browser does have add-ons, but not a lot of them. What's available is often not very useful, and many of the add-ons perform the same tasks. But at 10 megabytes, Opera is still the smallest browser to download. 
and Opera might be a good first choice for those who have slow connections, because there's a turbo setting, and it can boost the download speed by compressing data and image traffic on Opera's proxy servers, and then delivering compressed files to your browser. One word of caution, though. Although Opera talks about speeding images, JPEG images are already compressed and are about as small as they're going to get. And often, compressing a compressed file ends up making the compressed file larger. So take this with a grain of salt. Bottom of the list, number five, Microsoft Internet Explorer. It is, of course, the number one browser, apparently because it comes with Windows. It's not the best. It's not the fastest. It doesn't have the largest number of add-ons. Some of the add-ons aren't even free. It's not the most secure browser. So why, I keep asking myself, is it still the number one browser? Is Microsoft thinking about acquiring Adobe? The irony here would be rich, because a significant part of Adobe's growth has come from carefully considered acquisitions. The New York Times says Microsoft's CEO, Steve Ballmer, has met with Adobe's CEO to discuss competition with Apple. Rumors sent Adobe's stock up, then down. My first thought was that this would be a very bad match. But on second thought, I'm not so sure. There were rumors several years ago that Microsoft was thinking about acquiring Adobe, but it never went past the talking stage. With Apple trying to lock Flash out of its mobile applications and Google trying to replace Microsoft Office, both companies might benefit from a combination. What about users, though? Microsoft is unjustly criticized for being a copycat. The company has come up with a number of innovations over the years, and although Microsoft doesn't often get things right the first time around, and what software developer does... I mean, after all, after 10 years of OS X, Apple has an excellent operating system, but Apple started with a fully functional version of Unix as its operating system's back-end and added the graphical front-end. Even so, OS X 10.0 was useless. Well, I think users might fare reasonably well if the companies merge. For Adobe to have better access to the operating system's internals would be a plus to Adobe. For Microsoft to have access to Adobe's graphics engine and typesetting prowess would be a plus to Microsoft. The threat to Adobe comes from Apple's photo editing application, Aperture, and video editor, Final Cut. These applications aren't available on Windows PCs. And keep in mind, most graphic designers use Macs. So the threat is real, even though many graphics professionals consider Apple's programs to be substandard, at least right now. Adobe's applications, of course, are available for both PCs and Macs, and that alone is enough to keep Microsoft in designers' minds. A merger would allow Microsoft to dump its Flash competitor, Silverlight, and the combined companies could concentrate on competing with HTML5, which actually could threaten both Flash and Silverlight. Some technologies would win, of course, and others would lose, but Adobe is good at playing this game. Following the merger with Macromedia, some Adobe products survived, and some Macromedia products survived. 
Adobe Illustrator instead of Macromedia Freehand, and Macromedia Dreamweaver instead of Adobe Go Live. Similar decisions would be needed if Adobe and Microsoft became one. Silverlight or Flash? ASP.NET or Cold Fusion? Adobe PDF or Microsoft XPS? Adobe is a big company, and the acquisition would be expensive. The number $15 billion has been mentioned. But if Adobe is big, Microsoft is even bigger, huge in fact. $15 billion isn't a huge amount of cash to a company that makes more profit every year than many nations' gross domestic product. Microsoft could acquire Adobe in a friendly or hostile takeover. I have met product managers from both companies, and I can tell you there are similarities. They are fiercely loyal to their applications, but they are generally willing to listen to suggestions. But below the surface, differences are inevitable. Developing graphics, publishing, and video applications differs considerably from developing operating systems and office applications. When Adobe acquired Macromedia, Macromedia simply disappeared because both companies had a lot in common. If Microsoft acquires Adobe, I would hope that Adobe remains as a more or less freestanding operation. So, although my first thought was, Oh, no! When I heard there was once again discussion of an Adobe acquisition by Microsoft, it now seems that there might be some promise in a small house of mud. In short circuits, Yahoo's stock price jumped more than 15% on Thursday when reports began circulating to suggest that AOL, or maybe News Corporation, would buy Yahoo. That's now being characterized as nothing more than a trial balloon. Even Yahoo claimed to have heard about the plan only from reporters. AOL has a history of buying high and selling low, and AOL is now worth about a tenth of what Yahoo is worth. AOL is valued at $2 billion. Yahoo's value is pegged around $20 billion. Some of that worth comes from its 39% ownership of Alibaba, the largest Internet service provider in China. About $12 billion of Yahoo's worth, in fact, is tied to Alibaba, and the company is reported to have little interest in selling that now. Still, the story did sell some newspapers on Thursday, so I guess it was a success. Steve Ballmer held one up this week, but you can't buy it yet. The Windows Phone 7 mobile operating system was the subject of Ballmer's presentation this week. You can buy a Windows Phone from AT&T starting in early November from T-Mobile before the end of the year and sometime next year from Verizon or Sprint. To start, three phones will be available, each about a $200 device. By sometime in 2011, that number will increase to nine. Dell, HTC, LG, and Samsung will make Windows phones. Ballmer says some will have keyboards, some won't. Microsoft has had the phone in development for two years and really wants to get into the smartphone market. Microsoft's first-generation phones had begun to catch on when Apple released the iPhone. Sales tanked. Earlier this year, Microsoft released the Kin. Kin? That's a poorly named phone aimed at younger users. What teen would buy a phone called the Kin? As it turned out, teens 
didn't buy the phone. Neither did anyone else. After less than two months, Microsoft canceled the product. Conventional wisdom, or maybe it's urban legend, says that Microsoft has to try something three times before they get it right. Well, the new phone would be the third try, and Balmer highlighted features that he said company designers developed based on research into how people use phones when they're mobile. The new phones will play well with Zune for music and video, with Bing for search, with OneNote, and if they get that right, I might be in the market for one of those phones. And also with the Xbox 360. Speaking of phones, and I was, the FCC says it would like consumers to be notified when they're about to use their cell phones in a way that will cost them a lot of money. The cell phone industry, which, of course, is always entirely upfront and honest with consumers about billing, usage, and long-term contracts, says the industry is doing just fine by self-regulating itself, and the government should just stay away. By just fine, apparently they mean that they think it's okay to allow someone who has a $40 per month plan to unknowingly rack up a $1,000 monthly bill by failing to notice the microscopic roaming icon on the screen, or that it's okay to place keys in such a way that makes it really easy to fire up the web browser accidentally at $2 per incident. If you have a cell phone, and you probably do, you have probably encountered Bill Shock at least once. The FCC says the industry should warn people when they're about to use the last of their monthly plans minutes or messages or that it might be reasonable for cell phones to be just a bit more clear about when the user is in a roaming area that's subject to high fees. An example from the FCC's files. A retired 66-year-old marketing executive from Massachusetts was billed $18,000 after his mobile service's free data downloads expired without notice. The user had received no warning. But once the Boston Globe got into the picture and wrote about the incident, the cell phone company agreed to cancel the bill. What do you think would have happened had the Boston Globe not become involved? Yeah, that self-regulation thing. It sure was working out well for that user. Cell phone companies have an interesting definition of unlimited, too, because virtually all unlimited data plans come with limits. Now, if the plan has limits... A reasonable person might expect that it wouldn't be called unlimited. The FCC seems to think that would be a good idea, too. Cell phone companies have a lot of sophisticated hardware and software. This stuff can track cell phone usage by the second, by the data byte transferred, by the location where the phone is used. So surely that technology could be set up to notify consumers when they're approaching a limit. Of course, government is bad, and self-regulating private enterprise would never let anything bad happen to consumers, so this power grab by the FCC should simply be resisted, shouldn't it? Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.